following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Welcome. There we go. Happy New Year and Happy Epiphany. We're going to be looking this morning in uh, Leviticus chapters 2 and 3, but I'm not going to read uh, the whole thing. There's a lot of repetition in these verses, so we're going to just kind of summarize. So we'll start by reading uh, Leviticus chapter 2, verses 4 through 13. Leviticus 2, 4 through 13. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain op- offering baked on a griddle, it shall be a fine flour, unleavened, mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant uh, with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Okay, we'll stop there for now. Um, this is Epiphany Sunday, a joyous Sunday, and I've titled this message, we have the title slide up there, I've titled this uh, message, The Joy of Leviticus. Because I'm sure for most of us, like when we think about Leviticus, that's what we think of, right? Like a book just dripping with joy. And that's why we love the book so much, because it just is so joyful. Uh, well, actually, there is, there is a lot of joy, and believe it or not, what I just read about is actually a description of great joy, uh, but the problem is a lot of it often goes by us. And one reason is that, of course, we're just bewildered by all these like, very detailed instructions about you know, grilled and pan-fried and baked and cooked and honey or no honey or salt or leaven. or It's just confusing, right? So we can kind of miss because uh, it, there's a lot there and, and understanding what it all means uh, kind of goes by us. Uh, but sometimes I wonder if, if the reason we miss the, the significance of joy is because we really misunderstand God's purpose for joy in our own life. And I know for me personally, oftentimes I don't really uh, think first and foremost that God in saving us uh, did it because he wants our life to be filled with, with his joy. Uh, and certainly Epiphany, we celebrate the, uh, the Epiphany, the coming of that light, and with it should be a joyful celebration. And that should really be true of all that God brings to us into our life. But maybe... Um, Sometimes we miss out that because we tend to make our faith much more, maybe too serious. And there are serious parts to it, and we'll talk about that. But the goal should be, uh, it should be joyful. 
Uh, so uh, today we're going to look, we looked last week at the burnt offering in Leviticus chapter 1, and today we're going to look at the grain offering in chapter 2, and then we'll read a little more later on the fellowship offering or the peace offering in chapter 3. Uh, and as we dig into these, I hope that we see um, that there is, there, there is the intention in these of great joy, and we'll be able to see that and see how in our own walk with Christ um, that can be experienced. It's really important, you know, one of the other problems as we uh, look and read through Leviticus is uh, these lists of, of detailed instructions oftentimes are a little bewildering to us because we've never actually seen them practiced, right? Like we didn't grow up going to the temple and watching our parents bring up these offerings. And so one of the things that's helpful for us, and as I hope to show, uh, is that, that these offerings were never offered just randomly and individually. And when you read through Leviticus, it can kind of seem like, uh, they would, you know, flip open the menu like like a, a menu at a restaurant and pick out today. Oh, today I think, ah, why not a grain offering? Today seems like a grain offering kind of day, right? Uh, but that's not actually how it worked. And there was some, there was a, a very specific order and sequence the way these uh, offerings and sacrifices worked. And they're listed uh, in this order in the book of Leviticus because, especially these first three, uh, would have been would have been offered in this order and by this sequence. And it's really important. The order is actually uh, as significant as what, what they offered and how they offered it. Um, and so uh, as we unpack this, we'll talk a little bit about what that order means. And there was meaning in everything. Everything they did was symbolic and had a picture that represented truth and meaning about their relationship with God. And even in this order, there's some, some point to it. So let's uh, dig into this a little bit and, and see how, um, how they did it and, and how uh, for them it was to be an experience that was joyful. And then at the end, I'll uh, with some specific ways we can apply this. And it very much is relevant to our own walk with Christ as, as we should be experiencing the joy of Christ in our life. So first, the, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the grain offering... And I'm going to look at, uh, at three ways that, that they experienced joy in their worship as they brought these sacrifices. And the first one is the joy of gratitude, of being grateful. And uh, there, there were uh, listed here, and I didn't read the whole chapter because, like I said, it repeats. But basically, the grain offering could be brought in one of two forms, one either uncooked or cooked. If it was uncooked, it would have been just uh, milled fine flour, and they could present just flour to the, to the Lord as, as a grain offering. Or cooked in one of three options. Baked in an oven, probably like some kind of a, a non bread if you've had non bread uh, Grilled in a pan, which would be kind of like a tortilla kind of thing. Of course, always unleavened. Um, or thirdly, fried in a pan, which would probably indicate like, like in oil, like deep fat fried. Which would have been my preference. I would have liked that one the best here. So... Um, and they would bring it and they would uh, crumble it up, a portion of it, and they would pour oil on it and incense and, and uh, salt. And they would, uh, take, uh, they would give it to the priest and the priest would take a handful of the flour or the bread and he would put it on the fire where it would be burned. And then the rest of it would be his lunch. Right? So, so this, was, this was really how the, the priest, and this was the main staple for the priest, how they how they survived and lived. As people would bring these grain offerings, uh, that would be what they would, what they would eat and how they would live. Um, so, but what's, most, what's, what's important to see here is that 
almost always, with, with except, a few exceptions, almost always the grain offering was offered along with the burnt offering. And in fact, uh, in, the, in the daily offerings that were commanded in the tabernacle or in the temple, they were to have a burnt offering in the morning and a burnt offering in the evening. And the evening burnt offering was always accompanied with a grain offering. But also when, a, when an individual person came bringing a burnt offering, almost always it would have been accompanied with the grain offering. You wouldn't just bring a burnt offering by itself. You would bring with it this grain offering. Uh, the exception was that um, if a person was extremely poor, they could actually bring a flour, uh, a grain offering, as a substitute for a burnt offering. And in that case, the whole thing was burned on the altar. Uh, it can also be, uh, and the regulations also covered the gift of first fruits. And what that meant is at the harvest time, when they began to harvest, they would take uh, a portion of their, their, their first uh, produce of the harvest and they would offer that. And it would be also a grain offering. But typically, the most common form of the grain offering was uh, along with and really simultaneously with the burnt offering. Um, so, so what is this picture? Right? What, is, what is the symbol here? What is this about bringing grain and offering it with this burnt offering that, uh, you know, what did it mean? And how is there joy in it? Well, to really understand that, we need to review a little bit, just in case we forgot or we missed last Sunday, what the burnt offering is. So the, off, the, the worshiper would come into the tabernacle, they would bring their bull or their, their lamb, and they would offer it as a burnt offering, and with it, this grain offering. Uh, but the burnt offering, if you just review a little bit, uh, I call this A is for atonement. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when we teach kids the alphabet, we often use, uh, we, we say A is for what? Normally, apple. It was really cute. A couple of days ago, I was in um, Isan visiting some of the kids that we helped uh, sponsor to stay in school through uh, Education Matters program. And this little guy um, who wants to join the program, his mom was just trying to show me how smart he was. And she said, Tell him you know, that you know the alphabet. So the little kid just takes off. This little bloody guy, five years old, he just whips off in English uh, the English alphabet. A is for blah, 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 B is for da, 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 all the way through the thing. It's like, wow, that's pretty good. Uh, so we do that to help kids remember, right? So A is the first, and A could be for apple. But really, in this context, A is for atonement. And the point is that atonement always comes first. When the worshiper came into God's presence, the first thing you had to deal with always was the fact that you come in as an unholy person who has sin into the presence of a holy God. And that's dangerous business. Dangerous business. And that sin has to be dealt with. It has to be atoned. And so always when the worshiper would come in, the typical thing would be to bring, often to bring a burnt offering first, to make atonement, right? to deal with the sin in your life, uh, whether a specific sin or, or often the burnt offering was more just the general sense that I'm a sinner. I'm sinful. I, I say and do things that I know are not pleasing to God. And those things have to be atoned for. And so the burnt offering, they would do that by first, we talked last week, remember, about laying the hands literally means leaning on the animal. And it had this idea of really placing my whole life and my guilt on the, on the sacrifice that was about to die as my substitute or as a surrogate, and that I, in, in, in some sense, I died through that. And the reason that was necessary is that the, the penalty of sin was to come under God's wrath, and, and the cost of that, the price of that is death. 
that really what I, what the worshiper, what I would, would deserve would be to be destroyed by God. But uh, instead, God had made a provision in this animal. So they would lean on the animal as a, as a picture of dying, paying that penalty through the death of that animal. And as part of that, they would collect the blood and they would splash the blood on the altar. Uh, they were not to eat the blood. And the reason is that the, they, they believed that the life or the picture was that the life of the animal was in the blood. And it was to be given back to God. And it was the thing that was, uh, that was atoning. And it was always the blood that, that represented the life of that animal that was cleansing, that was washing, that was atoning. Uh, and then finally it said that through that they could get atonement. And we talked last week that the, the best description of that word is the really idea of a ransom price. That your life was ransom, it was forfeit, it was under the death penalty. But God provided a ransom price that could be paid to ransom your life out of death. And that was the this, this sacrifice, this animal that died for you. Uh, so, so as they would come uh, making atonement, really dealing with their sin and, and um, making provision to come into God's presence and be made clean and holy, uh, the, the idea was, was that with that they would also bring this grain offering. And uh, the grain offering, offering literally, the, the Hebrew word literally is, is not grain, but it's actually gift. It was a gift offering, literally. And of course, they knew that it meant the bringing of some kind of grain. But what it really meant was a gift. And this word, interestingly, when it's used outside of uh, the context of, of temple worship, was a word that you would use if, if you were a vassal king and you needed to pay tribute to your overlord. In those days, being a king was dangerous business because... Somebody always wanted to wipe out your country and your nation. Right? There were always neighbors, always countries bigger and, and more powerful. So you would align yourself with a more powerful king, somebody who had a bigger army and a bigger kingdom, and you would put yourself kind of under him as a vassal. And what that meant is that uh, when some big army came uh, to attack you, you would send a, you know, an email to the, your overlord and say, Hey, I'm, I'm about to get attacked. Help! And, and this greater king would send his army and they would protect you. And you would pay a tribute. And, and usually it was an annual tribute or sometimes more often, maybe monthly, that you would pay a tribute. And it was a gift to this king who was helping you, who oftentimes would rescue and protect you. And that's really a great picture of what's happening here. Uh, you as a worshiper are coming in a covenant relationship with this God you're in a covenant uh, agreement with. And uh, he is your protector. He is your great overlord who's promised to watch over and protect and rescue. And as you come and make atonement, you see that he has made provision for a way for you to be in relationship with him and to have peace with him. And so it's a gift of gratitude that uh, he didn't wipe you out, that he didn't kill you, that he did not give you the justice you deserved as a sinner. And so along with the, the burnt offering, you would offer this grain offering as really a tribute of thanks, of gratitude for God's help. Um, and what's interesting is um, the grain offering, all except for when it was offered as a first fruit, always involved some kind of the work of, of your hands. Right? You couldn't just bring a, a bag of, uh, of wheat or barley that was unmilled and unprocessed. Even if it was just flour, the flour had to be milled. It had to be ground into flour. And in those days, you know, they just didn't go down to Big C and buy a bag of flour off the shelf. It didn't work that way. And if you go to Israel or a lot of the ancient cities of the world, 
uh, you'll see all over the place these grinding stones. And everybody had one of these in their kitchen. And, and that was kind of how life worked. You'd, you'd take and harvest your grain and you'd keep it in big jars in your house. And when you wanted to make bread, you'd take out some grain. And the first thing you would do is you would grind it. And I can imagine some of those women were pretty buff, you know, from uh, hours of just, you know, grinding and, and not to mention all the other work they did, right? Grinding that wheat. So even the flour represented the labor of their hands. And beyond that, I'm sure the priests were, were really happy when it came in the form of like pancakes or, you know, bread, uh, fry bread. Uh, they like that, right? Which represented even more labor of your hands. Um, so, you know, we live in a, in a day and an age where we, uh, the labor of our hand is really represented by money, right? Um, we, we, we don't barter by selling bags of grain for, you know, tomatoes. Money represents the work of our hands. But what they were doing is really bringing some representative of their own labor, their own work, as a, as a way of saying thank you to God for his, uh, his grace in their life, right? For extending to them grace and the provision for new life in him. Um, so, so this was a, a gift of gratitude for God's provision, both in atonement, but then also it was recognized that although it represented the labor of their hands, they knew that they, they, didn't, in, they didn't speak the, the wheat into existence, that the wheat, the grain itself, was, was also a gift of God's provision. So on the one hand, it represented their own labor, but on the other hand, it also represented God's faithfulness in giving them an abundant crop and a good harvest, and that they recognized that all that they had was from God. And so in this grain offering, there were many reasons to be thankful, and it was an expression of their gratitude. God's atonement, his provision of a sacrifice, his provision of everything that they needed, and they would offer some token of the labor of their hand in their life as a means of, of telling God thank you. Uh, but when you read through, you also see there's a couple in, uh, interesting instructions about uh, additional elements they were to bring. <coughs> um, first, they were to always salt it. Right. In fact, this was true of every offering. It was to be salted. And salt was specifically called the salt of the covenant. Uh, it also says that they weren't supposed to put honey or leaven in it. And when you look at those things uh, kind of against each other, no, no honey or leaven but salt, uh, it helps us understand what, what the salt is about. Salt was a preserving agent. Leaven and honey, on the other hand, were things that would cause fermentation and would eventually cause rot and corruption. Uh, and it's the salt of the covenant. Uh, and it's a picture of this covenant relationship that was permanent and lasting. Right? It, would, it was not a temporary covenant. It was permanent. And that was symbolized in the salt. Uh, but what's most interesting um, is it was also to be accompanied by oil and incense. Now, what do oil and incense represent? Well, this is where the joy part comes in. Right? Because that's what we always think about when we think of oil and incense. Right? Well, probably not. But for the people in the Old Testament, that's exactly what they thought of. For example, Psalm 45.7 says this, you have, loved, sorry, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Right? The oil of gladness. Well, it was a picture of good life. Uh, 
they were instructed, you know, to they would they would anoint their face with oil. It's kind of like putting on makeup. You put on makeup, why? Well, to look sad and gloomy and depressed. No, to look good, to look joyful, right? I don't actually use too much makeup myself personally. Let me clear on that one. Um, Proverbs 27.9 says this, Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. So in the Old Testament, you see that uh, oil and incense are pictures of gladness and joy. And it was a picture that they weren't just to be grateful, <coughs> but they were be, to be grateful with joy. Right? Uh, and, you know, it's possible to be thankful, but not overly joyful. Right? And that's not really what God's seeking from us. But as we worship him, as we contemplate his grace and forgiveness, the picture that's, that's being laid out here is that that should prompt in us a response of, of joyful gratitude, joyful thanksgiving. Right? That we should be like, it is awesome to see what God has done for us. Um, so so that's, that's the first picture. Joyful gratitude, right? And giving God an offering from our, the work and labor of our own hands uh, that we appreciate joyfully what he's done for us. Second thing in the, that we see in the um, grain offering is, is it's a picture also of joyful dedication. Um, and, and because the, the grain or the bread or the pancake or whatever it was uh, represented uh, their life and the work of their hands, the, the offering was also seen as really a dedication of a person's life to God. And again, this is, is not something they did apart from or separate from the atonement that was provided through the burnt offering. And one of the reasons we get confused about the Old Testament is we see these offerings separated and distinct, and so we think that somehow they had this idea that they could, you know, offer these things and they could earn righteousness. Uh, and certainly even the Israelites later in Jesus' time had twisted and corrupted it and misunderstood it. So much so that God said, I don't want your burnt offerings anymore because you're missing the point. But if we understand how they were properly, properly be given, we see that they were to dedicate their lives, not as a form of self-righteousness, but in response to the atonement that they had received by God's grace. Right? They were to in turn respond by dedicating their life to God their whole life, uh, and all the labor of their hands was to be a gift of, uh, dedicated to God. In other words, they were to live their whole life now in obedience to His commands in a way that uh, uh, characterized a holy life and ultimately that they were doing everything in their life for God's honor and God's glory. Right? They were dedicating their life and the labor of their hands to God. Right, so that's the, the grain offering. Right? And they're to do this joyfully. They're to joyfully, out of thankfulness, dedicate their life to serving God and living for Him. Okay, then we turn to the, uh, the, the fellowship or peace offering. And let me read a little bit about it. Again, I'm just going to read a section. Um, let's, let's read starting at verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12. And I think I have this on the slide somewhere. But... Um, if his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord and lay his hand on its head and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. 
Then he shall offer from it as his offering for a food offering to the Lord, the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and at the lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. Okay, so what is this offering about? The peace offering or fellowship offering. If you uh, remember much about the, um, the burnt offering from last week, it sounds a lot like the burnt offering, right? Uh, they come, they bring an animal, and they go through much of the same process. They lean on it. They put their hands and they lean on it in the same way. They kill it and they collect its blood. Uh, but of course, the main difference is that uh, they do not um, burn the whole thing on the, on the altar. In fact, this is the one offering where the worshiper got to participate by eating the, uh, a good chunk or most of the animal that was offered. So it was kind of like our pig roast. <laughs> of course, they would never offer pork, just to be clear on that. But same kind of thing. They would, they would go to the temple and they would have this barbecue. And uh, some of it was burned, the fat and, and the, the kidney, the liver, some organs were burned. But the rest of it, and, and a portion went to the priest uh, kind of as their payment. But most of the animal was cooked and barbecued and they ate it together as a meal. Uh, and there's some confusion about the... Um, the meaning of the, the, uh, the, or the, the proper translation of, the, of the, uh, the, the offering. It could be translated either as a peace offering, and your Bible, your Bible may call it a peace offering. It could also be translated as a fellowship offering. And uh, um, you can kind of take your pick. Both meanings actually apply. Uh, the, the peace offering, uh, that name comes because the root of the word is the word shalom or the word that is connected with the word shalom, which we know means peace. And it pictured uh, that as a result of this atonement that they've experienced, they are now at peace with God. And that peace was celebrated in a meal together in God's presence. Um, and that, that's where we get the fellowship part of it. It was a meal with, that they ate not only in fellowship with each other, with their family or with friends, but they were really eating it in fellowship with God. They would take it and they would eat this meal in the temple in God's presence. And it was a picture of, of communion with God. And throughout the Bible, oftentimes, if you wanted to have really good fellowship, you wanted to have really deep conversation and relationship with somebody, you would do it over a meal. So we see Jesus often got invited to people's houses to share a meal with them. And it was a time of, of fellowship and communion and conversation and relationship. Um, this picture is, is most vivid in, in Revelation chapter 3 where uh, Jesus is speaking to the church at Laodicea. And if you remember this passage, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will eat with him. Right? And he with me. And it doesn't mean that God's standing outside hungry and he's wishing we would open the door so he can come eat our food. Right? That's all it was about. It's a picture of him wanting to have fellowship with us, communion with us. And that's done over this <clears throat> exchange at the table of having a meal together. And so that's what the peace offering represented. It was, it was this offering uh, uh, of enjoying this meal of fellowship 
and celebrating the peace that we have with God. But again, it's important to notice that um, uh, the, the purpose of this offering, and there were three occasions, and we don't see this in this passage, but there were basically three times when you would offer this, uh, uh, this offering, when you would bring it. The first one was as a thanksgiving or confession offering. What's interesting about this is this offering, when it was brought as a thanksgiving or confession offering, it was brought with a burnt offering. Right, so if you were worshiping in this way, it would mean bringing two animals plus your grain offering. So it, it would work like this. You would come uh, with, say, a, a ram, and you would offer it as a burnt offering. And you'd go through the whole thing of leaning on it and collecting its blood, slitting, uh, slitting its, collecting its blood, uh, skinning it, putting the, the whole thing and watching it burn up in smoke. And along that with you, you'd bring your grain offering, where the handful of grain would be offered as an expression of your gratefulness for God's provision. But then after all that was over, you'd bring a second animal, a lamb or a goat, uh, possibly a bull if you had a really big family, but it was, you, know, you ate the whole thing. So uh, <clears throat> you kind of scaled it appropriately. If you had a really big family and all your friends, maybe you did a bull. Uh, otherwise, probably a goat. And you would offer it again. And this time you would uh, eat the meat. Uh, and it's important to see its connection here again with, with what? With atonement. Right? You were celebrating the peace that's now yours through the sacrifice of the burnt offering. Right? It can also be offered uh, as, a, as, a, as a vow. <coughs> um, a vow was basically a, a, when you prayed to God and asked God for help, uh, but you did it with conditions. And you say, God, I need help. And if you help me, I promise I will worship you in some specific way. And when God answered your prayer and when God helped you, you would fulfill your vow by bringing a fellowship or peace offering. And you would offer it up. And it was a way of, of expressing your gratitude that God heard your prayer and he answered your prayer. And you would celebrate with God in this, this fellowship meal. Thirdly, it could be done as a free will offering. And a free will offering meant God did something for you and God blessed you and God helped you and you didn't even ask. Right? You didn't even pray. But God was so good and kind and you experienced His kindness and His grace in some powerful way that, that, that just struck you. Like, wow, God is amazing. And God is so good and He's so faithful to take care of me and to bless me. And, and there would just be this feeling of of thankfulness and gratitude. So you would go and bring a free will offering. And in this case, it probably wasn't offered with a burnt offering. It would have been, uh, it would have been a, a kind of standalone offering. Um, but in all of these, um, it's, it's important to see that it's, it's, it's rooted in grace. Right? It's rooted in grace. And there is, a, there is a joy that comes with that grace. Now, in this offering, you might be going, well, I don't quite see the joy. Where's the joy in this? Well, of course, part of the joy would be in, 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 in the very uh, atmosphere of this meal. It was to be a celebration meal. And it was to be partaken of joyfully. And especially in the wilderness wanderings, the only time they could eat meat was when they brought a, a fellowship offering. And they were banned from eating meat at any other time. So, you know, day after day you'd eat, eat manna, which I got very tired of. So it was a big deal when you got to take a goat to the temple and have meat, right? have barbecue. So it was special. And, and there was some joy in that. And there was celebration in that. 
Uh, later, when they were in the promised land, that, that rule was lifted and uh, loosened a bit. But it was a joyful meal, and it was time together with family and friends, much like we would celebrate our, our Christmas dinner or our uh, you know, Easter ham or, or whatever, that how we celebrate with food, right? We celebrate with food. But also, there are, there are also uh, pictures in here of, of joy, and it has to do with how, what they burned. So they brought the thing, they had to eat most of it. But you remember, they would give and burn on the, offering, on the altar two things. They would uh, burn the fat and some of the organs, the kidney or possibly the liver. So what is the thing with fat and livers, right? Well, fat in, in ancient uh, times uh, was always considered uh, a luxury and was the choicest part of an animal. Um, and, and if you've if you've done much travel here and gone to much like tribal villages, uh, fat is still like 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 if they want to really honor you, they'll give you this big lo- lo- chunk of lard, and it's like you're special. You get the fat, right? And it really was the choices, and it's kind of a picture of that. Uh, a fat animal is an animal that's been fed abundantly, right? A lean animal, an animal without any fat, is one that's starving. So fat becomes a picture of abundance and, and excess and and God's blessing. And, and God was to get the choicest part of the animal. And so that meant giving to him the, the, the fat. That was the best, the best piece. Um, maybe when you were a kid, you would fight over <coughs> uh, food. Did you ever do that in our house? On our house, it was chicken hearts. And, you know, a chicken sadly only has one heart. Like, I had one brother. It would have been better if we would have fought over, like, the wings because there was one of each. But, no, there was only one chicken heart. And that made it special. So it was a competition who got the chicken heart. Well, my mom was, was smart. She would have said, well, the best belongs to God. We're going to offer it to him. And that's how it worked with these sacrifices. It was the best and the choices went to God. But what about the, the, the kidney or the liver, the organ, these, these organs, some debate on the translation. But um, in, in Old Testament times, they thought of uh, the heart being the center of the will and often of the thought. So when you talked about doing something with your whole heart, it meant you did it with all your will, all your intention, with great effort of, of, of thinking and planning. But if you wanted to talk about your emotional center, they would often talk about your gut, right, your liver. And they really saw the gut as being the center of their emotions. And we, 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 we capture that when we say, man, that just hit me right in the gut, Right. It, it, when we think of emotions, we don't think often of, of emotions in our... We speak of it in our heart, but oftentimes we also speak of it being deep in us. And so by offering the, the liver or the kidneys, it was this picture of, uh, of it being something that's emotional, right? That, that engages their emotions. Uh, they had just experienced atonement. And there should be something very emotional about that, Right? Um, in fact uh, uh, think about how this worked when they offered these offerings when they offered this burnt sacrifice um, there was something very personal about it because they raised their own animals because these people were all sheep herders so that means that the sheep that they brought was probably a sheep that they may very well have helped bring into the world and from the time it was a tiny lamb, they looked after it and tended it and they shepherded it. They took it out to the pastors in the day and they brought it home and put it in the flock at night and they, uh, they looked after it and they cared for it. And then you take it to the temple. And I don't know that they really thought of them as a pet, but, but it was more than just some random animal. 
they may have named it. They certainly would have known it by, by its characteristic marks. Right? It wouldn't have just been some random sheep. It was personal to them. And I take this sheep that I've raised and that I've tended to, and I lay my hands on it, and I, I say to the sheep, you're about to die for me. Right? And you, you cut its throat, and it was personal. Right? It was a very visible image of what atonement costs. Um, and so, uh, uh, so, so when, when they contemplate that, and as they watch that animal go up in smoke, right? This this idea that that should be me, that should be my life, being consumed by the fire of God's wrath and judgment. Um, I, I just can imagine that there was there were emotions that went with that. Right? That there was some feeling that went with that. That like. I am ransomed at the cost of, you know, Bob the sheep that I raised, and now I've sacrificed. Right. So, so uh, there was to, to be some some joy, joy in the experience. Right. Um, it's interesting. We live in a world and a time when uh, we want to talk a lot, and when churches really want to talk a lot about God's love. But they want to do that uh, in a way that excludes God's love from his wrath and his judgment. Right? It's become very unpopular to talk a lot about sin and about God being a God of wrath. And there's this, this understanding that, it, that if God's a God of love, he cannot be a God of wrath. But somehow those are mutually exclusive. And so we think, you know, it's, you're, not, you're, not, you're not going to be very joyful and we can't be happy if we're going to talk about judgment and sin and wrath. But the way to pursue joy is to not talk about that stuff and just focus on how loving God is right? how forgiving how gracious but I, th- I think it's profound as they brought these offerings is that uh, those things were mixed God's love and grace and his wrath and judgment met always in the offering and it's interesting even in this fellowship peace offering there is a piece of atonement in it and when they came, even in the fellowship offering, they still laid their hands on it. They still collected the blood. They still splashed it on the altar. The animal was still seen as a surrogate representative of you dying for your sin, even in the fellowship offering. It always came back to that picture. And I think that the, the truth is that our joy in Christ... The ability to feel and sense the emotion of all of that and, and, and be filled with praise of God's grace is directly connected to our understanding of God's wrath and judgment. Um, recent illustration of this. If you, if you think back a few months ago when those boys, the soccer team, were caught in the, the cave, right? And everybody was watching as day after day went by and these boys were trapped. And it seemed, first, that they couldn't even find them, right? It seemed hopeless that they would ever find them. And would they find them in time? And finally, they found them. And, and then it became even more impossible when they found where they were because they were way back in there, trapped by huge sections of cave that were underwater, right? And we all watched and, uh, you know, just worrying for those kids and seeing their families outside worrying. And, you know, they were talking at one point about taking three or four months, like waiting until the rainy season ended before they'd go rescue them. And, um, but finally, they made a plan, and, and, and I don't know if you remember watching, right, as they brought those boys out one by one. And the joy for those families, right, the joy they experienced. 
And, and the, the crazy thing is, that joy would never have been there if what? If they had not gone to that cave and gone home after school like they were supposed to. Right? If they had just gone home and not got trapped, mom wouldn't have been all that joyful. Oh, you're, you're home. I mean, she would have been happy. But nothing like the joy of having their sons delivered back to them from death. Right? And, and that's how it is with us. The reason sometimes our life and our worship is so joyless is because we really don't understand the depth of how trapped we were in the cave of death and sin and how impossible it was for us to get out of that, uh, that cave of death, out of that darkness. Right? We take it so casually. And so it makes redemption, it makes atonement cheap and, and meaningless, right? The reality is that the depth of God's love grows uh, and expands and increases the more we understand the greatness of his wrath and judgment, how much he hates sin, and its tremendous and devastating consequences for us. It's not just that we have to pay a little fine. It is our life that is forfeit. And so in the fellowship offering, those two things came together. They were to contemplate their sinfulness before God and what that meant in bringing death and judgment. But then through that, they experienced the joy of redemption, of rescue, of ransom through the offering that was paid for them. Uh, let me close with just applying this, uh, these principles kind of in our context. So what do we do with this, right? Uh, we, don't, we didn't bring our sheep and our lamb and our goats this morning. After the service, we're not going out and having a barbecue, as cool as that would be. Uh, we don't do that. So as New Testament believers who come to Christ in a different way through, through the blood of Jesus, and where there's no longer a need for these burnt offerings and sacrifices, uh, how do we do this right? as New Testament believers? Let me give a couple suggestions. First of all, First um, Peter 2.5 says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What are our acceptable spiritual sacrifices? Well, the New Testament talks a lot about giving the sacrifice of praise. Right? Um, it is a sacrifice, right? When we take the effort to praise God, to verbally speak about our gratefulness to God, to describe and to acknowledge His power and greatness and holiness, and to sing about His atonement in Jesus. Right? It's a sacrifice that God finds incredibly pleasing. The same pleasing aroma. Right? And as we gather and as we worship together, as we join together and praise Him, God delights in that as a sacrifice of praise. Um, and I think we can add great meaning and, and depth to that when we, when we understand the joy of God's wrath and judgment and his, his grace in forgiving us. Right? When we put those things together versus just celebrating his love. Um, Ephesians 2, 1 through 7 puts it this way, uh, putting these two things together in, in just a powerful way. Ephesians 2, 1 says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Do we really own that for ourselves, that we were the children of wrath? Uh, We should. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages, coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do we have stuff to praise God about? Man, we should. Right? We should be full of gratitude and praise. Right? Second thing we can do. Um, we, we do it as a church and as believers. We are called to give our offerings. And by that we mean our, our tithes, our offerings, our financial contributions. Why do you do that? Right? What is that about for you? Well, it's really pictured in the, in the grain offering, right? The grain offering was a representation of the labor of their hands that they offered up to God. A lot of times I think we, we have this notion that like, like God needs the money or the church needs the money or missionaries need the money. Uh, we like that one because we do. Um, and that somehow we give to support ministry and support work, which is good, and that's good, and we do that. But that should not be the, the first and main reason why you give your offering. You should give your offering as a gift to God representing your life and the labor of your hands. Right? And, and it's a representative piece. Right? God does not say, you know, I want your 10% and the rest of your life and your labor and your work and your stuff, you can do whatever you want with. But that's not how it works. Right? It is to be a symbol of dedicating your life to God. That you're giving Him this this representation as you drop the money in the offering um, we don't have a plate bag we have a bag the offering bag right representing all of your life's work that everything you do you do in word and deed to the glory and praise of Jesus and so we give an offering as as a sacrifice as an offering of thanksgiving to God um third or next we um we are to live our life in service to him. Right? Not only do we uh, symbolize that in giving an offering that we're dedicating our life, but Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you uh, by the mercies of God, brothers and sisters, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Uh, that, is, um, that, that would be best pictured as a grain offering. Right? As a grain offering, by the way. Um, because it's not burned on the fire. Right? Thankfully, we don't offer our lives as a burnt offering. Uh, it keeps on giving. But it is a picture in the grain offering of dedicating your life in service to God. Right? So we worship Him in service. Um, next, we worship Him in celebrating the Lord's Supper. Uh, and we're going to do that in just a moment. And I wanted to do it this morning after the message because there are some incredible images in these two offerings of the Lord's Supper. Um, 
First, the grain offering, um, the offering of bread. Jesus is the bread of life. And I think it's very fascinating. I've never thought about this, but when Jesus celebrated the Last Supper and he had all these elements before him and he was eating this meal, what kind of meal was he eating? Well, he was eating the, the Pascha, the, the, the Pascha, the, um, the, the, the celebration of, of, of the Exodus, right? The, what's the word for it? I lost it. Passover, that's the word. I can think of the, the Hebrew word. The Passover. And it, the main course was, was not bread. It was what? A lamb. So he's sitting at a table piled with, with lamb. Why did he not pick up a big lamb chop and say, this is my flesh? Right? That would make a lot more sense. But he didn't. He, he said he picked up the bread. And he said, this is my body. This is my body. Right? Why? Well, I think because uh, in the Lord's Supper, we really are sep- celebrating, and the, the closest picture to it is actually the grain offering, not the burnt offering. The burnt offering is what Jesus did when he died on the cross. Okay? He did offer up his body on the cross. But it's a done deal. And so when we come to the Lord's table, we're coming uh, with the bread that's a representation of his body given for us. It's also represented in the fellowship meal because it is a meal. It is the Lord's Supper. It's a meal that we join together with, with him. Right? It's a meal of covenant. It is remembering his blood that is, uh, that is collected. Unlike, though, the Old Testament where they could not drink the blood, we're invited to drink the blood. Why? Well, because Jesus gave his blood, it was poured out, but he rose again. Right? He has new life. And so we share in that life represented in his blood. Lots of other images we don't have time to go into, but as we take the Lord's Supper uh, today, be thinking about those images that are pictured in, in those, those offerings. Right? We remember Jesus' death and celebrate his life in gratitude. And it is to be a meal of joyful celebration. We remember his death, but we remember it with joy, uh, as they did in the grain offering. Lastly, and, and I like this one maybe the best, um, there really is something powerful about having a meal together in honor of something. Today we're celebrating Epiphany. Today you have to go out, and most of you, are, I'm assuming, are going to go eat lunch. Is anybody going to eat lunch? I know you're wishing I would stop so you can go eat lunch. Yeah, would you just shut up so we can go eat lunch, right? Here, here's, a, here's an idea. Instead of just eating lunch, celebrate a fellowship meal with your friends and family together in honor of Jesus. Okay? God invites us to that, right? To joyfully, and, and we don't need to make every meal this way, but like Sunday meals are a good meal. Like here's here's my here's my invitation to you. Spend some extra money today. Right? Forget your budget. Forget how poor you are. Splurge in honor of Jesus. I don't splurge every day, you know. But today, splurge in honor of Jesus, and make uh, it a festive meal. Right? That's what they did, and we can still do that. We don't need a an altar to do that. We can celebrate Jesus by enjoying a great meal together. Amen. Amen. All right, let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.